Isn't it a great thing to be able to worship, isn't it? And to praise the Lord and to be together with his people, even though we might have to wave from a distance. It's so good to be able to be together. Today, as I was going over our message, I was going to continue a series this morning that I started uh, during Easter time, the resurrection time. Uh, but in light of the fact that we were expecting this wonderful group here today, I was praying as to what passage I should continue with. And as I was going through a series of messages on the radio program, I make up a lot of messages, by the way. Um, I was going through the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. And as I was going through them, one of them stood out to me. And that's the one that I prayerfully prepared for today. So if you have your Bibles, I ask you to please to turn to Matthew chapter 5. It's normally called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. A lot of people read this and say, Pastor Lee, it took me exactly five minutes to read this. Why can't you preach in five minutes? <laughs> I'm said I'm not Jesus. But it's a beautiful message here. The Sermon on the Mount. This sermon is what I call the Believer's Manifesto. They're Magna Carta, if you will. And I do that because it very clearly outlines the personal and specific stipulations of Jesus Christ as how his people, his disciples, are to live, what they are to be, what they are to do, even what they are to feel. Jesus outlines it for us in this section. The Beatitudes specifically describe the desired character of those who call themselves Christians or disciples of Jesus Christ. It is, the Jesus, it is Jesus's profile of a true believer. If you want to know what it is that Jesus Christ wants you to be and to do, read and study the Beatitudes. In essence, these Beatitudes actually describe the character of Jesus Christ. And so what he is actually saying to us who claim to be Christians is what? Be like me. Simple as that. Be like me. Because in the final analysis, that's the ultimate evidence that the person is really a Christian. You don't ask them how many times they come to church or how much money they give. But you ask them how much are you like Jesus Christ. And if we are not becoming more like him every day, then you better examine yourself to see whether or not you be in the faith. The Bible is very clear on that issue. We are to be changing into the likeness of Christ every day if we are genuine believers in Christ. And that comes out very clearly in this Sermon on the Mount. Now, as you know, and we'll look in a moment, all of them, the eight of them begin with the term blessed. Blessed. Now, blessing me, to be blessed of God means more to be, means more than just being happy. All right? That's involved, but that's not the real essence of blessedness. To be blessed of God means to be approved of God. God only blesses those of whom he approves. So to be blessed of God means that he approves us. And as a result of this approval, we are, we become in a state or condition of inner joy. We experience an inner joy and peaceful bliss, tranquility, regardless of the external circumstances. 
You see, when we are happy, we are happy because the happenings around us are good, they're positive. If the happenings around us are not good or positive, we're not happy. But a person who is approved of God and blessed, regardless of the state of the conditions, can feel this peace and tranquility because we know we've been approved of God, even though our circumstances are rough. You understand? That's the difference. Being at rest in soul and spirit because of an assured, approved relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be blessed. It has to do with our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now the first four Beatitudes, the characteristics or traits mentioned in this passage, they're given in verses 2 through 6 of Matthew chapter 5. And as you read it through, you'll find that, first of all, a believer, a true Christian, a born-again person, is a person who is poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means that you are a person who has acknowledged your spiritual bankruptcy before God. This has nothing to do with dollars and cents. This has to do with a spiritual relationship. You acknowledge that, spiritually speaking, you are bankrupt. You don't have anything in your account. You acknowledge that before God and you say, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. But a believer is also is a person who mourns. This is the natural result of a person who is poor in spirit, who acknowledges the fact that they are spiritually bankrupt. They look around them and they see that everybody is in the same state. They're in the place of Isaiah. When he was exposed to the glory of God, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. There is a sense of regret and mourning and sorrow for the sinful condition within the individual as well as around us as well. It's a spirit of mourning. We don't rejoice in violence and murder and everything we see and rape and abuse. We don't rejoice in those things. We don't become used to those things. We don't become too familiar with those things that we are desensitized to them. We are sorrowful. We are saddened. We mourn because of that. That's what it means when he says, blessed are those who mourn. In other words, blessed are those who look at sin and misery the same way I do. That's what Jesus Christ is saying. Blessed are those who mourn. But a true believer is also a person who is meek. Blessed are the meek. This simply means that we have our emotions under control so that we are well balanced in every aspect of our character. We know how to maintain a balance. We don't get angry and sin. We might get angry, but we don't sin. We are able to balance the desires that we have for things or for relationships, to know that our chief desire, our chief relationship should be with Jesus Christ. That's the person who is meek. But a believer is also one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. And this is what I call spiritual hungering and thirsting. In other words, they have one consuming passion in life. And that is to be Christ-like, to be as he is, to think as he does, 
That's what it means to hunger after righteousness, to thirst after righteousness, to be right before God, to be right before man. That's our greatest desire. That's the mark of a Christian, the true believer. Now, each of these characteristics describe an inner condition, emotion, virtue, if you want, and they build upon one another. One flows from the other. You don't have these isolated. One builds upon the other. The last four Beatitudes describe the outward behavior. These first four describe the inward behavior or attitude. The last four describe the outward. In other words, the last four Beatitudes describe the manifestation of the first four. It tells us if we are truly experiencing these first four attitudes or virtues described in this passage, then this is what our life will look like. In other words, if you look at the scriptures, this is all of introduction. This is not a part of the message. This is introduction to the message. Being poor in spirit manifests itself through being merciful. Having an attitude of mourning manifests itself through purity of heart. Meekness is manifested through peacemaking. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness manifests itself through adversity and persecution. Today, we want to look at this uh, middle, if you want, defining virtual attitude in verse 7 it says blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy and i thought about that because i believe that the ministry of the folks who are here has to do with showing mercy and so we want to look at this virtue today i've entitled if i could give another title of the message is finding happiness in the midst of misery, finding happiness in the midst of misery, finding blessedness, the approval of God, as you deal with those in miserable conditions. That's the point. Now, as usual, if you take a look at it in verse 7, it begins with the statement, the opening statement, blessed. And we've already described what we believe to be blessed means. It means to be approved of God. And as a result of this sense of approval of God, we experience an inner joy, a peaceful tranquility, regardless of the external circumstances around us. Being at rest in soul and spirit because we know that we have been approved of God because of our relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why without faith in Jesus Christ, this cannot be experienced. This blessedness can only be experienced by those who've had a relationship with Jesus Christ, established on the basis of faith in his person, his death, and his resurrection. That's who are approved of God, the individuals who place faith in Christ. Then there's a demanded trait. In other words, without this trait, there can be no blessing. Blessed are what? The merciful. The merciful. 
This is the motivation for the blessing, being merciful. That's why we need to look at the meaning of this term, merciful, or mercy. The word mercy as used here in this passage under different means in the original, but here in this passage is the Greek word L-E-O. That's how it's pronounced. L-E-O. It's a group of words used in the New Testament to describe compassion, sympathy, and pity. Compassion, sympathy, and pity. But this particular word focuses especially on action rather than feeling. We can feel something and do nothing about it. That's not this word pity. You cannot show pity unless you're doing something about it. No matter how much you feel pity, if you don't do something about it, you're not showing pity. That's the point. This is the outward manifestation then of this virtue of pity. If we feel compassion only, that's pity. If we do something about what we feel, that's mercy. It's the acting out of a compassionate spirit or attitude. It is doing something about what we feel. But this word also focuses on the nature of the situation that motivates us to action. In this case here in the passage, the emphasis is on the miserableness of the situation. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who are actively involved in trying to help those who are in miserable situations. That's the idea. Miserable situations. It deals with the misery and miserable results of sin, of pain, of distress, and poverty. Grace removes the penalty for sin. Mercy seeks to deal with the consequences of sin. But never at the expenses of the justice of God. Mercy is always demonstrated in Scripture when it comes to spiritual relationship on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The only way God could show mercy is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the point. In other words, mercy is based upon a paid penalty and in fact is the outworking of a truly thankful, forgiven spirit. That's why it says, blessed are the merciful. Why? For they shall what? Receive mercy. You see, I am merciful. Why? Because I have received mercy. If a person does not really realize what they receive from God, they cannot demonstrate mercy. But a person who does cannot help from doing so. Now, there's another truth about this word mercy here. It has to do with the form of the verb. Now, I know I'm maybe giving you some language and grammar study here, but it's important to understand these terms because sometimes we use these terms without understanding. The form of the verb here, verb here in this passage, Matthew 5, 7, is what we call in the passive. It's not active, it's doing the action. It is passive. It's receiving the action. This implies empathy 
with another person in their misery. And it is the key to motivating us to provide help to one another. William Barclay, Barclay, who was a great Greek scholar, uses this word here. The word, the Greek word is miserai cardiac. Now, right away, you see cardiac having to do with the heart. Miserai cardiac. And it means the translation of the misery of another into the heart of the one showing mercy. You get it? The translation of the misery of another into the heart of the one showing mercy. The miserableness of the person goes right to the heart. Not to the head. Not just say, I know that you're suffering this. I feel it. Misery cardiac. There's another Greek word that's similar that used in this term. It is the word iliocardiac. The word I mentioned that this comes from. It means pity in the heart. The same Greek scholar says it means getting into another person's skin. Getting into another person's skin. You don't stay outside to look at the miserableness of a person. You get into this and get into their skin. You walk in their shoes. That's what Jesus is saying here. The merciful are those who emotionally and practically take upon themselves the misery of others. Now, I believe that beautifully describes those who help people with cancer. I really believe that. Because that's a very difficult condition. Extremely emotional situation. And only those who really feel it within their heart can be a consistent, consistent aid and person who gives succor to those who are experiencing this disease. In other words, Jesus is saying that those who show mercy incarnate themselves into the miserable experience of others in order to provide help. As the old Indian expression goes, they walk in the other person's moccasins. I want you to understand now, this is what it means to be pitiful, to show pitiful, and to experience the approval and the blessings of God. It is Jesus Christ speaking, and in this passage he's saying, be like me, I am merciful. Did you know that? How did Jesus become into the skin of human beings to show that he's merciful? Well, listen to the word of God. And this is the word of God. Now I'm reading it from scripture. And the scripture is the breathing out of God's word, the breathing out. So therefore, when I read this word, this is God's word to us. I'm not adding to this passage right now. I'm just reading the word of God. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise took part of the same, that through death 
he might destroy him that had the power of death, that's the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily, notice now, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the nature of the seed of Abraham. That's us. Therefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his human brethren. Why? Now notice, this is Jesus Christ speaking. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is also able to succor those who are being tempted. Do you see the truth here? The only way that Jesus could really give us comfort was by experiencing the things that we need comfort for. That's why he became a human being. Jesus, this is the only place here in Hebrews where this word merciful is used. Right here. And it has to do with Jesus Christ. He had to become a man to stand in the gap between God and man. Now what caused this gap between God and man? Isaiah tells us, verse 2 of chapter 59 of his prophecy, Your sins have separated you from your God. There's a gap because of sin between us and God. The only way God and man could be brought back together was by Jesus becoming a man. The God-man. The incarnation, therefore, was the securing of man's side of the bridge between heaven and earth. Between God and man. This is what is emphasized in this passage in in Hebrews 2. Jesus could have become an angel. Now, there's some who teach that he is an angel. That he is the brother of Lucifer. That's a lie. That's not true. Alright? He's not the brother of Lucifer. That would make him a creature. And if he's a creature, he cannot be God. Jesus Christ did not take on the, on the form of a nature. Of an angel. But... He took upon himself the nature of man. How? By becoming a man. While remaining God. The King James Version puts it this way. For ver verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed or nature of Abraham. He took on. It's translated from the same Greek word which literally means to lay hold of or to take hold upon. When Jesus became man, he laid hold of the nature of man. The same word is used in the story of Peter. You remember Peter saw Jesus walking on the water. He said, Lord, let me come to you. Remember the story? And Jesus said to people, what? come on. Peter got on about and boy, he was walking on water. But then he took his eyes off Jesus and he looked at the problems, the circumstances around. And he began to fall. Now this must have happened fast, you know. 
Because you don't begin to fall. You don't begin to go into You go, right? I mean, there's not slow motion stuff here. So what we're reading here happened quickly. Bible says, Jesus reached forth his hand and took hold of him. That's before he got under the water. That had to be fast. He took hold of him. That's the same word used of Jesus Christ taking hold of the nature of man to save him. He did it quickly. And what a hold that was. That's why I like to call this the saving grip of the Savior. He reached out to take a hold of the nature of man. Now, what the Holy Spirit is saying in this passage then is that as God, the triune God, in the person of Jesus Christ, reached out, gripped, took a hold of human nature in order to save us from sin. And one of the reasons why he had to do that, because he had to experience what we go through apart from sin. He was not a sinner, he didn't sin, but he went through the same things that we would experience. To make him what? A merciful high priest. He feels it when his people are heartbroken. He feels it when the person loses a loved one. In fact, he even weeps. He feels it when we are disappointed. He feels it when we fail. He feels what we feel. When we are on the bed of affliction, when those cancer patients that you're taking care of, and even if you have it yourself, Jesus feels that. He knows it. He knows what you're going through. That's why he can provide help to you. And let me say to any of you experiencing these kinds of situations, listen, I thank God for doctors and nurses and these caregivers. I praise God for them. But you know, the first person we should turn to is Jesus Christ, a merciful high priest. Now he uses these people, no doubt about it. He uses these folk. That's his hands to minister and to give succor to these individuals. But listen, it's Jesus. He says, you know something? You give a cup of cold water in my name. It's just like me doing it. Then you go to visit in jail or the hospital even. When you go because you feel pity, because you have this in your heart and you want to give help, when you go, Trusting in him, it's Jesus Christ who's working in and through you. That, that, that's a wonderful thing to realize. You say, no, that cannot be true. You're getting a little too mystical here. Is that right? You remember the Apostle Paul? He was an enemy of God then. God knocked him off his horse. Jesus Christ knocked him off his horse. And what did he say to Saul? Saul, Saul... Why are you persecuting the church? Did he say that? Why are you persecuting me? Me. So what he's saying here is that in a wonderful and a glorious way, we feel the heartbeat of Christ when we look at others who are in miserable conditions and we 
do something about it. It's Christ working in and through us. Be like me. That's what he's saying. And so as a man during his life in ministry, he got into the skin of man so that he could feel their pain so that he might be able to minister to them. He entered into our misery and therefore is qualified to minister to us as a sympathetic high priest. On the cross in his death, he had all the misery caused by our sin to be transferred upon him. He became our offering for sin on the cross. He took it upon himself. He took our misery, our miserableness upon himself. And now what he's saying in this fifth beatitude here is be like me. Be like me. Not in bearing man's penalty for sin. Only he can do that. But by bearing man's misery, the consequences of sin. In this way, you and I will become merciful as he is merciful. This, my friends, is our role, our responsibility, and privilege as a kingdom of priests over which Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And even as we have the assurance then we can go to him and find help in time of need. Isn't that a wonderful truth? To know that we can turn to Jesus Christ, our merciful high priest, and find help in any need, at any time. Isn't that great to know? But you know what he's saying to us? Say, that's the way we should be to people who are in distress. They should be able to turn to us who represent him at any time. And we should be willing and eager to provide help, to be merciful. That's what he's saying. Be like me. Luke says, be ye therefore merciful as your father is merciful. Second Corinthians 1 says, blessed be God, even the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That's what we are to be. We are to be people of comfort to those who are in miserable situations. And so I say to you, care, help us. I thank God for you. That's one loving advice. Be sure that your faith and your trust is in Jesus Christ, who enables you and equips you to be merciful, just as he is merciful. And we need to thank God today, all of us who are here, That Jesus Christ took our miserableness upon himself on the cross. And if you've never received Jesus Christ right now and you are unsaved, that means that you have not placed your faith in Christ. You are in a miserable condition. Whether you realize it or not, if you don't know Christ as Savior, spiritually speaking, you are in a miserable situation. And Jesus Christ, though, is there to take you out of that. Simply by placing faith in him. That's why like the passage in 2 Corinthians it says. God who comforts us all in our tribulation. That we may be able to comfort them. Which are in any trouble. By the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted by God. What are you saying? If any of us has experienced mercy from God or comfort from God. 
we should be showing it to others as well. In fact, God has showed it to us to enable us, to equip us to do that. The believer in Christ then becomes the transmitter of God's mercy to others. It is based on mercy personally received and manifests itself in mercy transmitted to others. In this way, we complete or help to complete the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. Listen to Jesus' mandate himself as given in Luke 4. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are bruised or crushed in spirit. That's Jesus' ministry. That's what it means to be merciful. And when we show mercy, we are simply carrying on the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean you can get all the applause and you can get a raise and you can get all that? Mm -mm. Jesus didn't get it. In fact, what did he get? He got slapped in the face, kicked, rejected, and, and crucified. That's what happens when we seek after righteousness. That's what happens when we try to be like Jesus Christ. When we try to, when we become like Christ, nobody puts us up on the bay, on a web and say, hey, 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 look at he's like Christ. Oh, no, no, no. They don't want nothing ever to do with us. Why? Because anyone who is really Christ-like becomes a sign of judgment to those who are not. And persecution is automatically. Whenever we stand for Christ, whenever we stand for righteousness, persecution is automatic. So don't try to be merciful. Don't try to be righteous unless you're ready to receive the blows. That's what it means to be Christ-like. Now some people say right away, I don't want to be Christ-like no more. <laughs> but the beautiful thing is that Christ never leaves us on our own. He empowers us. He enables us to be like him. In fact, we cannot be like him without it. He's the only one who can be like him. He's got to work in and through us. It's not us doing it. It's him. So I want to say to you of the Cancer Society, we thank God for you. We thank God for the work that you're doing. We believe that you're demonstrating a virtue that Jesus Christ very clearly outlines here in his Beatitudes. And we hope that you understand that too. And that you will see to it that you even more than you are now show Christ to those to whom you minister. Because he is our merciful high priest. And he wants us to be just like him. That goes for all of us, not only for those in the Kansas society, but for all of us. When we help, when we seek to relieve those who are in miserable situations, we are being like Christ. We are showing that we are being approved of God. We are blessed. And no matter what the situation, we have a tranquility within us, a peace within us that no difficulties can take away. Because we know that we are approved of God. And one day, as we keep faithful to him, he's going to say to us, because you've been merciful, enter into the joys 
of my kingdom. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Bow with me in a word of prayer, please. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Pray now that you might use it in a way that will glorify. We know that you will do so. We thank you for it because you promise that your word will not return to you void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which you send it forth. So we thank you for what you're doing in the hearts and lives of others. Thank you for uh, these wonderful group of people who minister, who show mercy to people on an ongoing basis. Strengthen them by your grace. Enlighten them by your spirit. Cause them to truly realize that they need to depend upon Jesus Christ, our merciful high priest, so we can be consistent in being merciful. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.